Welcome to London Welsh Rugby Club podcast. This is episode 30. Some news from the RFE this week, which will mean the resumption of the 15-a-side game with some adapted laws. There'll be no scrums and no mauls, so these have been replaced by free kicks or penalties. This should mean that after Christmas, the club are able to arrange some friendlies to get themselves ready for the fixture schedule that the RFE will arrange for the spring we will have 10 fixtures across 12 weeks. This also means that our women, plus our youth and minis, are able to arrange fixtures with the adapted laws and hopefully have a more regular second half of the season. Fingers crossed for that. Today's guest has a very impressive sporting credentials and has been at the top of her game in at least three different sports and is clearly very driven. Not one to sit down and chill out post her rugby career, she offers a fascinating glimpse into what it takes to be a top athlete and what challenge she's embarking on in 2023 with her colleagues from work. This is no ordinary challenge and she is no ordinary lady. Our guest this week is Rebecca Rowe. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by London Welsh Developments. London Wealth Developments offer the entire range of services for all your home needs, from plumbing, electrical, joinery and building and maintenance. There are many years of experience building all forms of extensions and conversions, the odd new build and some bespoke garden rooms and home offices. You will clearly see the attention to detail and understanding of your home that is difficult to match. They really do care and want the best for your home with no stone left unturned. For more information, Contact London Wealth Developments on 0208 335 9123 or email on info at lwdltd.co.uk. London Welsh Developments. Welcome to the pod, former Wales Rugby International and London Welsh women's player Rebecca Rowe. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me today. Never a problem. Now, I could have introduced you with a whole list of sporting achievements, but we can save that and discuss it in our chat, right? But before we get started, you've recently got engaged to your fiancé, Kirsty. So many yes. congratulations from all of us at London Welsh. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it was, um, we, we were up on, um, in Surrey on Box Hill and it was a real shock to me. I had no idea. So it was a nice surprise. So com completely out of the blue. Yeah, completely out of the blue. Obviously, we talked about these things during our relationship, but yeah. yeah, it was completely out of the blue. She'd been planning for three months, apparently, um, with some of my friends as well behind my back, and I had no idea. Oh, lovely stuff. Now, Kirsty yeah. is familiar to the London Welsh family as she has been the head coach of Barnes RFC Ladies and yes. also ran the Harlequins Foundation on Monday nights at London That's Welsh, right. which inspired some of our... A growing girls section to participate in rugby so um so always connections somewhere isn't there Rebecca yeah there always is in rugby you always know always know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody if you know what I mean so it's a very small world I think so apart from getting engaged and during this, this prolonged sort of lockdown strange pandemic year you know how, how's life been for you really because obviously you work um in the emergency services as well so it's, it's non-stop for you I imagine. Yeah so I'm, I'm a firefighter in the London Fire Brigade and um, yeah it's been a very interesting year to put it 
put it mildly, I think for everyone, but yeah, particularly I think in the emergency services. Um, so I actually had a bit of a change of role for three and a half months and, um, just, and worked for the London Ambulance Service actually during some of this pandemic. So they, um, there's about 300 firefighters volunteered to help out the um, ambulance service to get more ambulances on the road because the demand was so high, obviously, with the um, COVID. So I did that for three and a half months. So I was, I was um, seconded to the ambulance service. So I worked out of Isleworth Ambulance Station and um, drove the paramedics around all day and went to all the incidents. So it was very, very interesting to see the inner workings of the ambulance service. They've worked very hard and I have even more kind of um, appreciation for them than I did before, I think, after that. So quite different to the fire service. And I'm not saying like, obviously, um, some days you can be really busy and some days you can be less busy in the fire service. But with the ambulance, certainly during the COVID time would have been pretty much full on, you know, these 12 hour shifts, you'd be so busy, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, we, we'd, you know, we'd go out the doors at 6 a.m. and I wouldn't return back to that station till 6 p.m. the end of the shift. Um, so it was very different in the fire brigade. You know, we'll go out for an incident, however long that will be. We will always come back to the station because obviously we need to replenish the, and change our kit and, and clean the equipment and things like that. But in the in the ambulance service, you you're pretty much out for the whole day going from one thing to the next unless you, you need, desperately need to get back for something. So, yeah, it was quite different. So, uh, so that sounds you know, very tiring. So how did you manage to mm. stay fit and healthy during the, these times then? Um, so yeah, it was it was it was quite difficult actually because in the fire brigade we have gyms at the at the at the stations, which is great, obviously, especially with the pan, the pandemic with gyms being shut. So we still had gyms to use, which was brilliant. So um, I, you know, it was quite easy to continue keeping your fitness up. Um, but then with the ambulance service, they don't have have gyms at the stations because you're never at the station. Um, so I had to be quite tough on myself actually, and sort of make myself go out for runs, and um, we did circuits in the garden and just getting out and about um just sort of between night shifts when I was absolutely you know incredibly tired because we we were up all night going from job to job so I had to be really tough on myself so it was quite hard actually because was having a dog like you do have uh, that also makes you get out as well for a bit of fresh air and a bit of walks doesn't it oh yeah definitely George gets us out the house although um being a little mini sausage dog he quite enjoys lying around the house and sleeping as well so <laughs> And if the weather's bad, he won't get out the house. But yeah, he, he definitely gets us out, yeah. So um, that's a bit about now. So let's go back to the beginning for you because uh, you've had a lot of success in a lot of sports. And I'd really like to understand sort of the transition between all the sports and where you've been brought up and what's sort of driven you. So you um, obviously you represented Wales. So where were you brought up in Wales? Were you actually um, brought up in Wales? Yeah, so I was born in Bridgend General Hospital. Mm -hmm. um and so um i've lived around that area until i was 18 so i lived most of the time in ogma by sea if anyone knows that i was very lucky to be to sort of live right by the sea and had a really lovely upbringing um and then i i left wales when i was 18 to go to university basically in loughborough university so yeah i was born and bred in wales loved it and what part did sports play in your upbringing um, oh, I think it was massive. Uh, um, I was very lucky that my parents, um, that they kind of just got us into everything, me and my brother. So, you know, I did all kinds of sports as a, as a young, a young kid, athletics, swimming, tried gymnastics. That didn't go so well. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. And, you know, hockey, netball, 
um, at school tennis. I, you know, I did, I did everything. I think I was a very active child from, from pretty much when I could walk. And I think my parents had realized this. So they kind of pu uh, pushed me towards sort of active stuff. So different sports and things. Cause I think they thought that would probably be basically to burn me out. So I wouldn't be so, <laughs> so wild at home, I think, but, um, so yeah, so I was always active from from a young kid and very competitive. And um, so sport was, for me, sport was basically my life and always has been, I think. I'm a massive believer in, in multi-sport for children because you, know, you mm. can learn lots of different things from, from every sport. But did you focus on any sport in particular as you get into your sort of teenage years? Yeah, so um, I, I agree with you there. I think I think that um, kids growing up should should try all all the sports definitely because I think it really shapes you and helps your um, athleticism. But my um, main sport growing up was swimming. So I just got into swimming because we lived by the sea. So my parents wanted me to be able to swim, obviously. So I, you know, one could enjoy the sea and two was safe. Um, so and I just kind of got into swimming and and. Uh, quite quickly realized that I had a bit of a natural ability for it so I joined a swimming club when I was eight years old and kind of never looked back from there as a teenager so I started swimming competitively when I was nine and then um, did that really until I was in my early 20s um, and I loved it I think I'm a real water baby so you know it was brilliant a brilliant sport I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty um, demanding sport, though, isn't it, from a training perspective, because you hear about all these parents dropping children off at five or six in the morning for, for training. Was that the, the picture for you as well? Yeah, definitely. I started morning training, the dreaded morning training um, at 11 years old. Um, and yeah, it was it was it was a tough when I look back at it now. It was a, it was it was a tough old regime, not just for me, but my poor suffering parents as well. I think, um, you know, it was, I was getting up at quarter to five in the morning to go swimming in the pool at half five and out the pool about quarter past seven uh, where my dad would be waiting then take me to take me to school. Um, sometimes we'd stop off, stop off at um, Tesco's for a breakfast on the way to school. And then um, I do my have my obviously my school day and then I'd be picked up again at the end of school and then back to training for another swimming session between five and seven and then home for dinner and homework and then bedtime and then you know we'd be back up to do it all again the next day so it was definitely a tough old sport for um for people and especially if you're if you're you know competitive and you're trying to sort of get somewhere with it it was it was hard a lot of training a lot of long hours and a lot of sacrifice definitely that's, that's relentless that is the, the, mm. the, the amount i mean you're training by, by looking at my quick maths you know three to four hours a day you know, five yeah. or six days a week that is yeah that's a that's a lot for you know 12 13 14 year old girl to be doing so you obviously were quite good did you represent your like your, your county your country and at any stage during your teenage years yeah so I swam for Wales for quite quite a few years on and off so um I was 13 when I first um got into the Welsh senior team and I think I was the youngest swimmer at the time to make the team at 13 um, and then I, I competed for, for Wales at different international meets um, around Europe. But unfortunately, I never, my aim was to always get to the Commonwealth Games, but I was only, I just missed out. There was qualifying times you had to make and I never quite got the qualifying time. So that was, um, yeah, that was quite disappointed, I think, in terms of my swimming career. But I did hold quite a few Welsh records um, for 100 and 200 metres backstroke. That was my kind of main event. Um, during my swimming years so uh, and I won lots of national titles 
Um, I think my highest ranking was 11, 11th in Great Britain for 200 backstroke was my best ranking, which is not too bad considering the amount of people that swim. So, um, you know, and it was, it was a brilliant sport for me. It really shaped who I am, I think, with, you know, not just the swimming, but everything else that goes with it, really, the organisation and of your life, basically. So you're, um, a sprint, and, you're, you're a sprinter, really, in, in, in essence, really. Yeah, that's in yeah, their sprint distances, so. aren't they? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I never would have thought myself as a sprinter, but I suppose, yeah, 200 metres is, is a sprint distance compared to, to the longer sort of long swimming. So, yeah, I suppose it, I, was, I was a sprinter back in the day, yeah. And I, I mean, that's, that's uh, phenomenal. I suppose, you know, yeah, to have a goal of reaching the Commonwealth Games and just not quite mm. getting there. So is that like, so you were, uh, actually that's every four years. So were you yeah. any chance of getting to the Olympics at all? Or was that more challenging because I was Team GB and not, not Wales, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, the Olympics, actually, my lifelong goal since I was, uh, you know, since I can remember, was to compete in the Olympics. Um, it'd been like, it was a massive dream of mine. I'd watched it. I was obsessed with watching the Olympics whenever it was on TV from a child. And that was my sort of my lifelong dream to represent Great Britain in the Olympics. Um, but obviously swimming, unfortunately, swimming was not the one for me. Um but yeah. So when you went to Loughborough then, did you go in with like mm. a swimming ticket? Uh, and, yes, I and did. What, so, and what did you study then when you were there? Yeah, so um, I studied um, sports science uh, at Loughborough, which was brilliant because it was the best place at the time. I think it probably still is the best university to do a sports science degree. Um, and yes, yeah, swimming basically helped me to get to that university. Um, and I joined the swimming team there and it was, um, well, we were the best university swimming team at the time and so you know it was the best place for me to be it was brilliant there was lots of amazing other swimmers quite a few um olympians um have swam there and did i trained with at the time as well and the coaches were amazing i think one of them still is a coach at the olympics actually but um yeah it was a brilliant experience and i had amazing people around me to swim with yeah no i'm sure that you know just, you hear a lot mm. about Loughborough, don't you know and then and sort of the uh elites the amount of elite sports people there across you know different sports must be a great place to to you know for to, to try and be the best you can be and also maybe quite a good sort of social environment as well yeah definitely I think um people that know me know that I I enjoy the social side of things so um I definitely had a brilliant time at university not just the sport but the social side as well definitely meeting yeah, I've got lifelong friends from university now we've still got there's a group of us that will live together and I think I think it's our 21st anniversary of all knowing each other this year. So, and we still try and meet up every year. So, um, yeah, it was brilliant. I had an absolutely brilliant time there. Brilliant. No, that's great. So if, if swimming then, if, if you weren't able to go to Commonwealth Games, did you then decide then, look, you know, I want to try, I'd say, and realise your lifelong dream of the Olympics. Did you then look at switching sports? Because you then became quite good at a sort of surf lifesaving. I didn't realise that was a, a sport really, or, um, you know, a, a sport you could, you could participate in but I'm sure you'll tell me differently now yeah so surf lifesaving um it's it's really big in South Wales Devon Cornwall and then obviously Australia it's huge um when I try and describe it to people I say um it's uh, people think it's a bit like Baywatch but um there's no red costumes and there's no Pamela Anderson <laughs> so <laughs> but um um, basically, I, I actually took the sport up while I was still a competitive swimmer because obviously you've got to be able to swim to do surf lifesaving. So, and because I live by the sea, um, there was a club um, called Pennebon um, Surf Lifesaving Club, which is at Ogma by Sea. 
Um, so I, my parents got me into it just again, to be safe in the sea. Um, and I didn't realize when I started, I didn't realize there was a competitive side to it. So I just joined to be a lifeguard. Um, and then someone pushed me into doing the competitive side because I was a good swimmer and that's kind of how I, so I kind of fell into it really. Um, when I was about 16, I started competing and then did pretty well. Um, and um, ended up doing competing for Great Britain. So people probably wonder, well, how how do you compete in surf lifesaving? So it's not about being the best lifeguard in the world. It's um, it's basically um, a sport where you, you can either compete on the beach, in the sea, or in a swimming pool. Um, and they have lots of races like you would with any other sport. So you might do a surf swim or you might do a beach sprint. Um, or they have an event called um, a Diamond Lady or an Ironman for men, which is um, like you swim and you surf ski and you paddle a big board called a Malibu board and you run in between each leg. Um, so it's very big in Australia. Um, and then in the pool, you do events. It's run like a swimming, swimming race. Um, so you have heats and finals and all the events are kind of uh, to do with rescuing a big orange dummy a lot of the time, which you may have seen at swimming pools. Yeah. Um, and you, you basically swim either with fins on these big uh, flippers on your feet or without um, some races have them without. And you have like a rescue tube and you have to rescue a, the dummy. So you kind of swim to one end of the pool, rescue the dummy and then swim back with the dummy attached to your rescue tube. Um, and it's all based on time, just like a swimming event. Wow. Um, so there's so, those different events, depending on where, if you're yeah. in the pool or the beach or the sea. Exactly. So, but didn't you get a world record or something for one of the events? Is that yes. right? So, yeah. So I competed um, in two world championships um, in surf lifesaving. Police said that was Australia, not South Wales. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. I okay, was good. very lucky <laughs> that, um, yeah. So my first time I won in 2000 when I was 18 and that was in Sydney. Um, and it was, oh, it was absolutely amazing experience. Um, I can't tell you. And I was... I won that I actually broke the world record as well in the event I competed in. And um, it was a huge shock because I went there for the first time. I thought I'll just compete and, you know, try and do the best I can, obviously. But I was just going there for the experience. So to actually end up winning the world championships and breaking the world record was, um, you know, it was it was a crazy, crazy time. That's all I can say. It was amazing and probably the feeling that I'll never come close to again, I think. Um, that's, that's just brilliant, you know, um, winning yeah. that, you know, um, your Aussie sports you know, on their ground, on their turf, do you know what I mean? Mm. So that's, that's fantastic. So, so you'd finished yeah. that and you finished Loughborough. So did you go from Loughborough, did you go straight into into work? Because obviously you're in the fire service now. Did you start in the fire service back after Loughborough? No, not at all. So I've only been a firefighter for a, for a couple of years. So um, at university, so towards the end of university, I started rowing actually. So um, I was basically still chasing the Olympic dream. So surf lifesaving is not an Olympic sport. So um, unfortunately, so that was never <laughs> going to happen. Um, so I'd achieved all I could in surf lifesaving um, and then um, decided to change sports to, ch to chase this Olympic dream and got into rowing. So then I ended up rowing for um, a good few years. Um, and so during that time, I'd finished university and, and I'd come back to Wales. So I'd moved back to Cardiff to to basically try and um, pursue this career in rowing. So I'd started rowing in Cardiff on the Cardiff Bay um, with the Welsh team. We had a little group of us there that used to train down there. So I had lots of random jobs part-time, so I was still yeah. able to train. So I worked um, I worked in a, um, a window company that made double glazing as an administrator. 
for quite a couple for a couple of years actually. I've worked in NatWest Bank for three months, so I've had lots of random jobs, mainly admin, so I could sit down and rest the legs. But why rowing um, though? Because because obviously you, you've been good at swimming. I know it's on the water, mm. um, but you can't. You know, if you're good at you're good at swimming, you're, you're quite you're quite strong. But was this done through like a a Loughborough talent identification program? Because it seems like you've gone jumped out out the pool onto a boat, then you literally within a few months you're now in a whale squad. Yeah, um, no, not at all actually. So um, I did try for the talent idea. They had a thing called World Class Stark um, going at the time, but I wasn't tall enough, so I couldn't get into it. Because um, I think you had to be something five foot ten as a woman, and I was five foot eight, so I was too short. Um, so I just went around the freshers' fair basically looking for a new sport, and um, and I knew a bit about rowing because I'd watched in the Olympics, but that was about it. And um, I kind of uh, they they sort of stopped and chatted to me, and I thought, oh, I'll go along. Just I thought oh, it looks good; it's on the water. Again, I'm a water baby, so I thought I'll go down and and see what it's like. And I got hooked really really quickly got very obsessed if anyone's ever been a rower or tried rowing you really do get the rowing bug and you get hooked even though I was terrible at it to begin with falling in could barely move the boat um, there's a lot of balance and skill required which I didn't realize at the time um, but I think the main thing that I I kind of push myself um, to the forefront of say that the Welsh team coaches and stuff is that um, we do a lot of training on the rowing machine the, the ergo which is I basically call it the devil's tool for rowers because it is horrific awfully painful if anyone's been on a rowing machine and um i i did a really fast time on there and i think just because of my swimming background and my physical fitness and probably a bit of mental strength um i was able to do a very fast time sort of faster than a lot of the um high level um rowers that they had at the time so that kind of pushed me forward and so they took me into the welsh team even though i wasn't great on the water they thought you know you've got the physical ability so we can teach you the skill side of it basically that's amazing you must like you must like suffering that's what it must be all these years of you know early mornings and then you try like rowing which is again one of those sports you just have to put a lot of lot of effort in in, in the training for that you know one race every every quarter or something i'm sure you race more regular than that but you know what i mean but you also do you then did you manage to get to compete for wales at rowing yeah, so I competed um, for Wales. Um, they used to have an, a home international every year. So I competed there for, I think I did three of those. Um, and they had a Commonwealth Championships. Unfortunately, Rowan isn't in the Commonwealth Games, but we have our own championships. So I competed in that for Wales uh, to, in 2005, I think it was. And I got a silver medal in the single skulls. So that was good. And then um, I went on to compete for Great Britain as well. So I ended up rowing in the GB team for three years and being paid to then be a professional sports person, which was amazing because, you know, as someone who loved sport and that was my life, being actually paid to do something I loved was absolutely brilliant. You know, it was the dream job for me at the time. And is that um, lottery so funding then? Is that, yes. Actually, is, okay. So, and then, so who was with you in, in that, in that, um, in the GB rowing squad at the, at the time? Was it people like Catherine Granger and, uh, or is that, is that maybe too too early for her? I don't know. No, no, no. That was, yeah, no, it was, Kath Granger was, um, yeah, she was a big part of the team at the time. So I trained with her every day. Um, Anna Bebbington, who won a medal with Kath, actually, in the double. Um, there was lots of Olympians, basically, because rowing was, I suppose, one of Britain's biggest sports or most successful sports in the Olympics, and still is, I think. So I had, I was very fortunate to, to row with um loads of olympic medalists basically and train with them every day so it was you know it was brilliant it's absolutely brilliant 
I suppose that drives standards. And was it the same coach as the men's, or do you have a different coach? Was it Jurgen someone, wasn't it? The coach for the uh, for the um, men's, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it, Jurgen Grobler. No, so we had different coaches. We had Paul Thompson. Um, he was the head coach for the women's senior uh, senior team at the time. Um, but we would see them because we all we all trained together at Cavisham Lake, which is the British uh, rowing sort of centre. So um, we all trained together. So yeah, it was it was brilliant, brilliant experience. Um, and I got to race at a few World Cups, um, a World Championships where I came fourth, um, a Europeans where I came got bronze medal. So um, and I won Henley Royal Regatta as well in two thousand and five. So wow. um, I had a, yeah had a really great time, really great time in the team. Um, but unfortunately, my Olympic dreams were dashed once more, this time through injury. So that's why I ended up retiring from rowing in, in 2008 because I had a back injury. Um, and basically the doctor had told me I, had to, I couldn't row anymore. So I had to stop. So that was uh-huh. the year of Beijing Olympics. Yeah. And I was um, obviously I had, they hadn't picked the team. I wasn't picked into the team, but I was I was in the GB squad and um I was actually that year I was doing really well kind of um, rowing wise times and positions, you know, competing with the likes of Catherine Granger and things. I was well up there. So it was it was a real, a real tough blow to take during that year. Definitely. And so at the Olympics in Beijing, did anyone get a medal that you had beaten? Uh, yes, the majority of them, because at the time I was I was beating I was pretty much ranked sort of fourth or fifth in the GB team at the time in training so and I think um out of all the women's boats that went I think I think all but one of them so I think maybe four out of five boats won Olympic medals so it was it was tough you know obviously it's all hindsight and who knows you know I might not have even made it there but you know on the form that I was I had at the time it was yeah it was very difficult I found it very hard to watch the Olympics that year I'm sure you did so you so so you so so if you're You've hurt your back. You can't row anymore. You then choose mm. to go into rugby. Now that's quite a physically demanding sport, and you get a few knocks and things. Why are you? Able, why are we able to play rugby but not rowing? Yeah, so um, I think it was just because rowing is it's just the same thing every single stroke. You know, you're you're moving your body in the same way um, constantly over you know a certain distance or time. Um, and the repetition on your lower back is is huge. And I think with rugby, um, obviously, it's it, you know it's not the constant same movement all the time. So I think that's for some reason that is why I was able to play rugby and never really had any issues with my back. Um, I did take kind of um, a year or so out of doing any sport after rowing, um, probably because I was mourning the loss of you know not being a professional athlete anymore. I think. Um, and just trying to find myself as well and obviously as well trying to heal my back because I was you know was in a bad way f- for a while but um yeah rugby never seemed to have an I never seemed to have an issue with my back which was great so you so obviously full-time professional athlete no longer you had to then mm. decide what what was your career of choice potentially and then carry on playing sports at the highest level possible you choose rugby so what was your profession at the time and then what was your rugby journey whilst you're your, I suppose your, your your professional career was taking off as well. Yeah, so after rowing, I think I then decided that I needed to um, grow up and get a proper job. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I trained as a PE teacher. So I got my PGCE and um, became a PE teacher, basically. And that was my, well, I thought at the time that would be my career 
for, you know, forevermore. So um, I was a full-time PE teacher. I started at Dulwich College, um, which is a boys' school, um, working there, which was great because I got to coach rugby um, and rowing because they had a rowing team. Um, and then obviously the other the other sports as well. But it was brilliant because I was still doing things that I loved as well. And, and you know, I'm being paid for it and being a teacher. So it was brilliant. Um, and then I moved on to um, a girls school called to William Perkins after a couple of years. Um, and again, went there to coach rowing because they were a rowing school as well and and taught PE. So, yeah, that's what I did um, while I was playing rugby. So it was quite tough trying to juggle a full time job um, and train and play rugby. It was difficult. Where were you playing then for rugby wise? Because you didn't come immediately to London Welsh, did you? No. So I, when I first started, I played at um, what was the old Harlequins women. So before Harlequins women was um, the team it is today, the high level team, um, it was just a, like a very amateur side. Um, so I started there over in Isleworth. I think um, their third still play there, actually. Um, so that's where I actually started the game just for a season. But I think I only played I played about three months and broke my hand and had to have an operation. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm not sure if, if this is the game for me. I don't know if I want to continue to break my bones. Um, but um, I kind of got sucked back into it again then the following the following season. And I was back playing and uh, I never really looked back then. So I think I played I think I played for Quinn's the first time round for for about a, a season or so before moving to London Welsh. And what was the attractions coming to London Welsh? Were they a, a higher standard than than Harlequins at the time? Um, no, we were actually in the same league at the time. Um, but I think we, the Harlequins had a lot of very good players retire from the game. We were struggling with numbers. Because um, back then, you know, women's rugby really did struggle for for numbers and, and you're getting enough people to train in the things. And I think, we, I suppose we were just going off the ball a bit and I was, I was getting a bit... Um, disillusioned with with it I think and then I had a few friends um, that I played against so basically Bryony Bryony Lynch and and Diane Crowther um, they were playing at London Welsh and they had said well they were trying to basically said do you want to come over to London Welsh you know you're Welsh and we're a great club and got lots of people at training so I decided to make the move basically went over to London Welsh I think in about 2011 I think I joined did, did other people from Harlequins come with you at the time? Because I think some of the current crop of um, yes. women players that started at Harlequins as well, and whether you, you all came over together or not, I wasn't sure. Yeah, so I think I went over and um, basically reported back to a few of the girls how great it was, and I managed to drag quite a few of us over then, I think. So um, the likes of Hannah Clark, um, Isha Story, Nat Smith, Zoe Jeans, um, and managed to um, drag them all over with me basically to London Welsh, which was brilliant because, you know, we was already a great team. And then I had, you know, a few of my, my great teammates from Quinn's coming over as well to London Welsh. So it was brilliant. That's the current spine of our, our women's squad already. Mm. And I, I take it, I mean, yeah. Coops, Coops and Ruth would have been playing at the time because they've been there for 20 yes. odd years, haven't they? <laughs> yes, they were there. Coops and Ruth, Miriam was playing at the time as well when I was there, Amy Garrett. Um, and then you had Kira Howell, she came over um, and Jenny. Katie McBride. Yeah. So, yeah, no. yeah, it was a great, great team. Fee, uh, Fiona Duggan, Helena Potts. Yeah, they were all yeah, the girls that I was know, playing with. I know all those names, gosh. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, and um, I suppose, so, so from moving to London Welsh then, what stage did um, Wales ambitions surface for you? Um, I think it was, I think I'd be playing there maybe um, a year or two and 
Welsh rugby had put out um, an advert for um, a talent ID transfer transfer um, scheme, basically to get people to to try and get more people into the Welsh team. And he didn't have to have played rugby; just needed to play sport at county level or above. And um, and um, I remember Amy Garrett telling me about it, and she said, "Oh, I'm going to go for it." And I was like, "Oh." And I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. But I remember thinking to myself, we've stopped doing high-level sport now. You, you know, you're just doing this for fun now and a bit of fitness. Do you want to go down that route again? And, uh, you know, so I thought to myself, then Amy said, I'm doing it. And I thought, well, if Amy's doing it, I want to do it. Because I thought, if she does it and gets in, I'll be very jealous. And <laughs> so, so I decided to sign up for it as well. And, um, and yeah, and that was kind of it, really. You've signed up and then... Um, went along and to a, a session and then got asked back. And then pretty much I was kind of swooped um, scooped up into the Welsh training squad and then was starting to go down to Wales twice a week to train at, um, train at the Vale. So it all happened quite quickly. It was a bit of a roller coaster. And then did, um, did you have to sort of swap your allegiances from the club point of view? Because do did they want a lot of the players to play for some of the regions, or, or was the fact that you playing for London Welsh fine for the WIU at the time? Yeah, no, it was fine. So I st- I stayed at London Welsh because, like you know, I loved the club, and you know, all my friends were there. It was a brilliant place. So I stayed there for. So I I um, played for Wales in my first Six Nations in two thousand and fifteen, and I stayed. At, that was I was still at London Welsh then when I played in my first Six Nations tournament. Um, so they had no problem, you know, with me playing at London Welsh, and it was great to to you know still have that London Welsh representation when I played for Wales. I think that I also thought it was quite important to me as well to have that. I think because you know London Welsh had been being my club really that had um, helped me grow as a player and, and taught me how to play rugby. Cause you know, I, yes, I'd watched it all my life, but I'd never really played rugby. Um, so it was quite important that I was, you know, especially having my first cap and, and still being a London Welsh player was quite important for me. And I remember a news story at the time, didn't you train with Roland Phillips's team as well or something? Or maybe I may have said that in the, in the PR, but did you, you know, did you attend a training session and, um didn't like roll and make a big deal of you at training or something yes that was it yeah so before I got in the before I got in the Welsh team actually I think it was that probably that same um season that I just before I'd gone down to trial out for the Welsh team but yeah he it was when he was coaching the men's team and I think we I think we turned up and I don't know if we hadn't if we hadn't had a coach or something had happened and he wasn't doing anything and he he agreed to come and take a session for us so, yeah, so we ended up taking a session with us and it was brilliant. And I didn't know Roland really at the time. Um, so it was quite weird that he ended up being my coach further down the line, actually. But, um, yeah, it was a brilliant session. So who, who was the coach then when you started playing for Wales? And, and then how many how many caps did you have? And, you know, did you manage to get to a Rugby World Cup? And if you did, what was that like? Yeah, so when I first started, the coaches were Reese Edwards and Richie Pugh. Um, so they were the coaches at the time that... that sort of got me in and then developed me for that first season and then they um and then I think Roland started the season after that then um so I ended up I had 19 caps for Wales in the end I played a few more games than that but not all of them were capped um and I started I think I started 13 or 14 of those capped games so um so yeah it was you know it was way more than I'd ever thought that I'd you know would do once I'd finished rowing I thought that my international days of sport were over so Rugby was almost for me a bonus, really. 
Did you get to a World Cup? Because the World Cup in 17 was in Ireland, wasn't it? Were you still playing mm. for Wales then? Yes, yeah. So I got to the World Cup. So I ended up playing in three Six Nations tournaments. Um, and then, yeah, finished off with playing um, at the World Cup in Ireland in 2017, where we finished seventh and automatically qualified ourselves for next year's World Cup, actually. Yeah, so it was a brilliant tournament. Absolutely amazing. And which is in New Zealand and Wales That's got the right. group of death, haven't they, with New Zealand and yes. Australia in there. I've seen that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And funny enough, we had the group of death in the last one as well because we had New Zealand and Canada. So <laughs> we're obviously not very good in the draws. So we don't have much luck with that. No, it's funny, isn't it? Because um, um, did you ever get the opportunity then to to, to play uh, at the ha higher standard of rugby after London? Did you leave London Welsh Women at all and, uh, during this period to play at higher standard of women's rugby, or did, or did you always play for Wales whilst you were at London Welsh? Yes. Yeah, so after my first um, Six Nations tournament, um, once I'd finished that season with London Welsh, I then decided to. Um, moved to a premiership club because I thought that I needed to play at that higher level. I think once I'd played an international season, realising the standards as well, I thought that I needed to play to develop my own rugby skills um, and to stay competitive, to, you know, to continue trying to be selected for the team. Um, I needed to play in the professional, um, the more the professional team. So I ended up moving to Richmond Rugby Club um, for a season um, and ended up winning the... Um, the um, premiership that year with Richmond, which was brilliant. We beat Saracens at the stoop, which is always great to beat Saracens. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was brilliant. And I learned a lot playing at that level as well. I think it was kind of like the, the next step up um, for me from London Welsh. And it was, you know, it was, it was brilliant. And the, the um, playing with lots of in other international players as well at Richmond and their um, coaches were great there. So that was great. And then the following year, basically then, Harlequin's women's um, premiership team was formed um, and then pretty much the whole first team from Richmond ended up moving to Harlequin's um, and we became the Harlequin's um, women's team along with uh, quite a few women from Ellsford Bowls actually and then some other other people around the place so then I ended up that's the club I finished in in the end was the Harlequin's women's team and won another premiership title with them as well which was brilliant um, and yeah that's where I, I ended up playing the rest of my days in rugby wow you had so so much success didn't you really and that was um yeah and women's rugby's come on so much in, in this was in the time even the time that you started playing isn't it i mean in terms of the the support the support for the game the amount of people playing the game um obviously that that was when you went to harlequins that was when the, the when they commenced the tyrrell premiership wasn't it as well yeah that's right yeah it's it's, it's changed massively i mean i i suppose that you know i didn't play rugby for for really for that long, what, six, seven years. But, it, you know, in that time, I think it's changed massively. Um, just just the, I think, in the professionalism of how, you know, how the players go about um, with their lifestyle and their training, definitely, you know, back, back when I first started, um, there wasn't that many people really that kind of worked on their strength and conditioning and did lots of extra training outside their rugby training. Whereas, you know, you wouldn't make a first team in the Premiership if you weren't doing all of that extra stuff now. So, um, yeah, it's 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 changed hugely. And I think also, you know, that just public's attitude and, and other people within rugby, just the attitude towards the women's game has changed. And I think that's been a, a big driver, really, in pushing it forward and making it more professional. And some might say, including myself, it's actually a better game to watch at times as well, because mm. it's, less, less, it's a bit like rugby was, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago for men, because it was less about the contact and more about contact avoidance and passing and tap and goes. It seemed like a, it's a quicker game than the men's, I think. 
Um, but certainly from our ref- when I've refereed some of the women's game I've done anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think so. They say that there's, you know, there's the, t- the balls in play more as well, maybe, or, you know, there's more time on the ball and things in the women's game. Um, I mean, for me, in the position I played, so I played second row for Wales. So, to be honest, the contact side for me was was my favourite bit. <laughs> and the scrums <laughs> and the lineouts. I was less about the running rugby, more about the smashing. But, um, yes, in general, I think, yeah, the, the women's game, I think, is it is good to watch because there is a lot more running rugby and and less, um, yeah, just smashing into each other. What was it like getting you getting that first cap for Wales for you? Was it was a quite emotional time for you? Although you've been obviously capped at you know other sports, but if, you know rugby in Wales is, is big. So you know, was a was it quite special? Oh yeah, it was it was it was a brilliant day. Um, well, apart from I got injured on that game, but um, yeah, my first game was in Swansea actually, and. Um, we were playing England, funnily enough. So my first cap was against England and we beat England. So it was an amazing day, you know, purely for, for those reasons, as well as it was my first cap. So all my, all my family had come to watch and actually um, 30, there was about 30 or 40 um, kids from the school that I was working at in um, Chertsey. They'd all got a bus and all come down to Wales to watch the game as well. So it was brilliant. So I had loads of support and um, obviously we beat England. So that was pretty magical because, it doesn't happen that often. Um, so, yeah, it was a brilliant day. It was absolutely brilliant. And I think um, to represent my country um, again after, you know, all the, the other sports I'd done. And I think this time around being a bit older as well and not really thinking that this was ever going to happen again, you know, after Rowan, I thought that was my lot. Um, so, yeah, I think it was probably more special in that way. Um, how did it finish uh, rugby for you? And was it like injury or just... You decided, you know, you've had enough for sort of playing sport at a, at a high level and want to do something else. You know, what, what was the end for you? Yeah, so um, it came to a nasty end in the end, to be honest. I um, got injured, basically. So I'd, I'd competed in the World Cup in 2017. I'd come back, I'd had my rest and um, I was playing um, a game for Harlequins against Gloucester Hartbury in um, the Tiro's Premiership and um, got injured. So I, I ended up rupturing three ligaments in my knee um, and basically was disabled for a couple of months, pretty much. Um, so that, it, that basically ended my rugby career, which was quite tough because, you know, as an athlete, I think you always want to try and end it on your terms. And unfortunately it wasn't ended on my terms and I definitely wasn't ready to, to finish playing. I think I was hoping, you know, I would squeeze out another two, three years, maybe get to another world cup. So it was, um, yeah, it was really difficult to have to, to stop playing at that time. I'm sure it was. And actually, you know, what people don't always appreciate is rugby, even the Tiddle Premiership, is an, is an amateur sport. So, you, you know, mm. you're, this, these injuries impact your you know, professional life. So, you're, you know, you're a PE teacher. That would make it quite challenging for you to, for to work, I imagine. Yeah, that's it. I, well, I had to actually, I, was, I had to have, um, I had four months off work because I couldn't walk. So I was in a wheelchair for a while. So, um, yeah, so the school were incredibly supportive. Um, they were absolutely brilliant. Um, so I was able to have the time off and recover and do everything I needed to do, um, you know, just to get back to being a normal person and being able to do normal things. Um, and then, um, and also within that time, I'd started applying for the fire brigade. So um, when this injury came about, um, I had to put off, I'd, I'd had a training course um, date sent to me, but obviously I'd then 
done my knee in so I couldn't do anything so um, I'd had to put back trying to get into the fire brigade as well so it really did have a huge impact on my life um, and and also because of the decision to be a firefighter that's probably the main decision of why I didn't try to go back to rugby after I'd recovered um, because of the risk of re-rupture and and um, you know it it ruining my career as a firefighter so I had to make a big decision really not to continue no, so the school had been very supportive to you during your mm. injury, and then you, you get better and you leave the school and go and join the fire service. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you can't, yeah, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? It didn't quite happen that way. It didn't quite happen that way. I had told the school before the injury, actually, that I was applying for the fire brigade, and then kind of the injury happened and the school, um, they were amazing, and they kept me on, basically, until for that whole the whole rest of that academic year um because I was then unsure whether I'd be able to get back um, into the fire brigade because I had to go through lots of medical boards and decisions as you can imagine um for them to decide whether I was going to be fit enough to do the job um and whether the knee would be okay to survive it so um yeah so that that's probably the main of the school were brilliant because they knew that I was you know still going to be leaving at the end of the year but they they kept me on, which was great because I had actually given my, started to give my notice in already before I'd done my knee in and they held it back for me. So they were amazing. That, that is great. That is great. Now, so mm. you joined the fire service and that's your profession now. But, yeah. you, know, you know, having been successful at loads of sport during your career, you, know, you, you don't want to sort of sit on the sofa and have a cup of tea and chill out when you're not working. That's not good enough for a Brecker row, is it? You've, you're, you're now <laughs> embarking on a, a, an, um, a challenge with some of your colleagues that's it's absolutely phenomenal. And it's, you're planning, this is in like three years time or something, isn't it? The challenge, it's the Antarctic Fire Angels. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that, please? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, you're right. My, um, my poor suffering mother, she, she always says to me and my brother said, can't you just, you know, you've done so much in your life. Can't you just sit down and relax now? Surely that is enough. And for some reason, it, it never is enough. I get bored and I need a challenge again. Um, so yeah, so so um, there's um, five female firefighters, two from South Wales Brigade and three from London Brigade, and we are planning to traverse the Antarctic in 2023. Um, and it just the five of us, so no guides, um, and we will be pulling all our supplies on sleds and using skis to to get across the continent. So how far is that and how long is that? Are you expecting to do that then? In how many, is it how many days or weeks? I've got no idea. Yeah, so, um, so yes, yeah, so we've got a rough estimate of 70 days, but obviously it depends on weather and, you know, our bodies and, and everything else. So the distance is 1,900 kilometres. Um, so we're hoping to do it in 70 days. Um, so that would, is about, we're hoping for an average of 27 kilometres a day, which doesn't sound too horrific, but when you're pulling, um, you know, 90k, sledge behind you um, and you're on your skis for around 10 hours a day and then obviously camping in a tent in um in temperatures of uh, up to minus 50 with uh, you know horrific winds in the middle of the antarctic it doesn't sound quite so quite so easy so here's a couple of things then so why mm. three three years preparation time and why this particular challenge so the three years um, is because, uh, well, one, because we, we can't, they don't just let anyone just turn up at the Antarctic and say, we're going to, we're going to go off for a, you know, a long walk. You have to, um, you have to do certain smaller training expeditions, um, 
you have to do about three or four training expeditions in Norway and Greenland, and you have to be basically signed off as safe to be able to go to the Antarctic. Um, so, so that's one big reason. So we've, we've actually got a trip planned in Norway in January, at the end of January, to go to um, Norway and learn to Nordic ski and camp out in the snow and, and kind of do what we'll be doing in Antarctica. Um, and then the other reason is because it costs so much money. So we've got to raise um, around £500,000, which um, is a lot of money. It's very expensive to go to Antarctica. Um, so, you know, we've given ourselves um, a few years to to fundraise and try and try and get that money, but also to fundraise for charities because we're doing it for three different charities as well. So we want to try and get as much money as we can for the charities, raise their profile and and the reasons that why we're doing this expedition. So can you just let us know who, what those charities are and what and then and also how can people support you? And then what we'll do also um, on this podcast page, we'll put the links on the page. So if people listen to this want to support you, then they, they can they can do so as well. But so, so who are the charities then, Beck? Yeah, so the charities are the Firefighters Charity, of course. Um, you know, we're all firefighters. And I think, you know, the, without that charity, so many firefighters would would struggle. You know, they're a huge help, ju- not just with injury, but, you know, mental health issues and people suffering with PTSD um, within the fire brigade. But they don't just help the, the firefighters. They also help the firefighters' families as well. So, you know, they, they are an absolutely brilliant um, charity that the firefighters could not do without. So that is our one of the the charities the other one is the Fawcett Society which um, is a massive advocate for equality and basically crushing stereotypes um, as we're all women and the other one the final one is Harlequins Foundation um, which is uh, sort of very close to my heart being uh, you know a Harlequins player and obviously Kirsty working for Harlequins um, so you know their their charity is a massive advocate for inspiring girls and women to get involved in sport obviously being rugby but they use that more as the um, vehicle really to just get people involved in activity and you know keeping their mental health well um, and being more aware of it so um, that was a big one for us. So how does the balance uh, between raising money for um, the charities and also raising money for if you actually to you know get the equipment and the training in place for you to you know, go to the Antarctic. How how does the balance shift between them? Are you looking for corporate sponsors and you know for to fund that, and then everyone when you're on the way there, people will then just sponsor you, or you know, how does it all work? Yeah, so so we've we've got a few different um, areas. So I think obviously for the for the big money, we will definitely be looking for the corporate sponsorships. Um, because you know the reasons behind doing this are for us to you know to to push them to push female firefighters and, and just women in general to, you know, be able to do anything you want to do if you, if you, you know, put your mind to it, not just going to Antarctic, but anything. And um, also to, to, to make people more aware of, of mental health as well. And, and, you know, just be able to speak out and it not be that, you know, have, have this big stigma around it. Um, but yes, yeah, so corporate sponsorship is a big one for us to get us there. But, you know, if we don't get there, then we're not going to be able to, to, um, you know, give this message out I think and then we've also got a GoFundMe page as well for for the charity side of things um, and we're hoping to do things like auctions and um, sort of uh, charity days um, obviously COVID pending but hoping next year as well to to do things like that and also um, going to schools and spread the message um, and hope that they can try and help fundraise for us for our charities as well so um, 
we've got quite a few things in the pipeline of how to to raise the money but yeah the actual money for the trip for our training and our equipment we hope to get through corporate sponsorship it's a it's a lot of money in it look anything that london welsh can do to help you 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 know you know where we are please engage with the club and we'll do what we can via this podcast to publicize things also um we had a charity called inspiring girls sponsoring the women's rugby team for a while and the, the lady there is um, Miriam Gonzalez Durantes who is Nick Clegg's wife and she is big on oh. um, breaking stereotypes yes. um, for women so I think you know um, maybe speak to, to a couple of the people of the women's team who might know her directly or, or I think it was Sarah Johnson who introduced us to um, to Miriam um, and she she maybe can help help you engage with that charity you know you know or do some pr for, I, I don't know what exactly but that's mm. something that you can you know could, could live side by side maybe with what, with what you're doing yes definitely sounds great really good okay we'll put you in touch look you know um just to wrap up then so look i've really really enjoyed this conversation you've achieved so so much in, in your life and you're going to set you know, obviously looks but you're going to set you know achieve a lot more um, when you reflect on your time at London Welsh, you know what what did playing for London Welsh mean to you, Rebecca? Um, I think being Welsh for me, I think it it was it was like my family and my I always used to say it was my my little bit of home in London. You know, I really miss. I've been in in London now about. 15 16 years and I think being at London Welsh made me fit made me feel like I was at home you know back in Wales um you know I made such brilliant brilliant friends lifelong friends there I think um and obviously playing rugby was you know it's a it's an absolutely brilliant sport for everyone um and certainly being Welsh you know it is it is our sport isn't it it's it's the nation's favorite um but yeah it was it was just like being at home for me I think definitely no, it's brilliant. Look, your name's on the board in the clubhouse. You're a legend of <laughs> London Welsh, you know, the club. Um, and look, we wish you all the best for this Antarctic Fire Angels. Please come to one of our lunches to talk about it on a Saturday post-COVID and when we got a big audience there. I'm sure we can raise a bit of money for you. But, you know, in the meantime, look, stay safe and thanks very much for your time today. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, cheers. <laughs>